Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. All right, shall we get into it? So I wanted to start with an excerpt from a Buddhist monk, Bhante G. I believe his last name is Guanarantana or something like that. I've never heard it spoken before, so I'm not sure. So I just call him Bhante G. Guanarantana, yeah. And he uh, wrote a couple books, really wonderful author. And I would, I would actually highly recommend reading these books if you're interested in learning about meditation. Uh, called Mindfulness in Plain English. He also has one called The Four Foundations of Mindfulness in Plain English. And uh, in this excerpt, he's talking about this practice, mindfulness of breathing. So just to preface it a little bit. He says, when you first begin this procedure, expect to face some difficulties. Your mind will wander off constantly, darting around like a drunken bumblebee and wandering off on wild tangents. Somewhere in this process, you'll come face to face with the sudden and shocking realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking, gibbering madhouse on wheels, barreling pell-mell down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way, and maybe you've just never noticed. You are also no crazier than everybody else around you. The only real difference is, for the meditator, you have now confronted the situation, and maybe they have not. So they still feel relatively comfortable. That does not mean that they are better off. Ignorance may be bliss, but it does not lead to liberation. So don't let this realization of your crazy mind unsettle you. It's a milestone, actually, a sign of real progress. The very fact that you have looked at the problem straight in the eye means that you are on your way up and out of it. I've been teaching meditation for about 10 years. I do that in Buddhist settings and also secular settings. And the thing I've realized in teaching to a lot of different people is that we have a lot of misconceptions about what meditation entails. I think the way it's usually pitched to us is some version of if you meditate, you'll feel more calm or more at ease or your mind will become more peaceful. And I think that's true. But how we get there, I don't think we're very clear on, especially if we're new to meditation. We don't always hear what's in the fine print. How do we find peace? How does meditation help us get peace? And I think the Buddha was a very instructional teacher. 
He's not a teacher that taught on dogmas. He's not a teacher that emphasized belief or blind faith. He's an instructional teacher. He's a teacher that really talked about the fine print. What does finding peace entail? How does meditation get you there? What are the instructions that you can undertake and practice to find peace? So I thought I would talk about the fine print a little bit. It's not that the act of meditation alone brings us peace, like somehow sitting down, crossing your legs, breathing miraculously, your mind decides to be calm and restful. For many of us, it's the opposite. You sit down, you breathe, you cross your legs, you notice your body, and your mind is a mess, like Bonte G says. But instead, I think meditation should be viewed not as this kind of singular experience of calmness or peace, but as a long-term training, kind of like a learning process. Because we're learning about the mind, we're studying it, we're seeing on one layer the patterns. We might just call this the reactive patterns. We start to notice what our mind obsesses about. The comparing mind is a good example. You start to see that the mind spends a lot of time comparing ourselves to other people, projecting their thoughts and feelings onto ourselves and vice versa. The mind spends a lot of time making up self-made stories about how good or bad I am at things and so on and so forth. So one layer of investigation is we start to study and notice these patterns of thinking. And there's a deeper layer as well. And the deeper layer is not better. It's just more subtle. And the deeper layer is that you actually start to see the nature of the mind itself. You get to know its characteristics. And what we're going to be talking about today, and I'll get into in a moment, is you start to see that the mind is actually impersonal. It's imperfect and it's impermanent. And through this process of noticing the patterns of our thinking and then also noticing the nature of mind, which if that doesn't make sense to you yet, stick around for 10 or 20 years. (laughs) The benefit of doing this is that we actually come to a deep intuitive knowledge, not a knowledge of the intellect, but a knowledge that comes and can only come from seeing something over and over and over again so much that you start to believe it because you see it. And that type of understanding is what allows us to break out of the self-made prison of the mind because it's the mind that causes our suffering in life. So Bhante G says, ignorance may be bliss, but it does not lead to liberation. One of the things that irks me a little bit about the popularity of meditation, A, I'm really glad it is popular, but is that I don't think people recognize what it entails. Carl Jung calls it shadow work, right? He says, we don't awaken by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. Practicing mindfulness requires a lot of cognitive dissonance because you're staring at all of the reactive habits of your mind and you're also learning to see your mind as impermanent, impermanent, imperfect, 
and impersonal. So what do we learn through meditation if it is a learning process? Today I'm going to talk about this. The topic is the three marks of existence, which are the three lessons that we're learning through meditation. And they're also the essence of the Buddha's teaching, the essence of the Buddha Dharma, I would say. Interestingly, the Buddha doesn't talk about the three marks explicitly a whole lot, but you can find their essence in every single teaching that he offers. And the other thing about the three marks to know is that these aren't intellectual understandings. It can be helpful to talk about them as a concept, as an idea, but they're really con contemplative exercises. They're things to try to see through the mindful eye of our practice. In our tradition, we call this vipassana, or insight meditation. Because I always have this question, okay, mindfulness, mindfulness, does that just mean be present? Is it, you know, be in the moment? It's like, yeah, that's a part of it, but there's this whole other part of it. Mindfulness of what? Mindfulness of the body, okay, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind states, mindfulness of thoughts, okay, that sums up everything I can be mindful of. Mindful of. But what am I learning by being mindful of the body, feelings, mind states, and thoughts. What I'm learning is the three characteristics, that all of these phenomena, as I start to notice them arising and passing in the moment, I can start to see that they are impermanent, impersonal, and imperfect. So we'll get into what that means and I hope that it makes some sense, but the reality is that not all of it's going to, and that's okay. You can talk about these three marks of existence, dukkha, anicca, anatta, are the Pali words for them, on scales of experience that will resonate. I think all of these things at face value we can get behind. But then you can also talk about them that only really you could understand if you meditate. If your awareness has been staring at your mind and body for a period of time, you start to see them with more clarity. So they are, as I said, Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. Those are the three Pali Sanskrit words for the three marks of existence. And sometimes they're referred to as the three marks of existence. Sometimes they're referred to as the three characteristics. If you want the long definition, they are called the three universal characteristics of conditioned phenomena. Now, if you're anything like me, when I hear the word conditioned phenomena, I'm like, I have no fucking clue what that means. <laughs> I still like kind of don't. I kind of am getting it a little bit. But what the Buddha means by conditioned phenomena is he means that everything that you experience in your mind and body process. So what you've got to realize about the Buddha's teaching is he's not interested in making statements about the world out there. This is really hard for the Western mind if you were raised in maybe a more orthodoxy type of religious tradition 
it's really hard to understand that the Buddhist teachings are not about belief. They're not about the world out there. They're not about the nature of existence. They're about the nature of mind and how the mind creates suffering and how we can find peace. So when he talks about these are three universal characteristics of conditioned phenomena, he's talking about everything that you can experience in your mind and in your body. And I'll give you an example. You can experience sight, smell, taste, sound, and physical feeling or sensation. We learn those five senses in kindergarten. But you can also experience in the mind-body process, there is this mind that is incredibly powerful. So in any given moment, you have thoughts arise and pass. Have you noticed that? That your mind has moods that it goes through. Your experience is pervaded by emotions at times. Memories, mental images, dreams. There's this whole world of mind that is incredibly powerful. And the Buddha is saying that everything that's being experienced, whether it's through your body or through the mind, everything that you experience is pervaded by these three universal characteristics. They're all subject to these three things. So the first is impermanence. And I want to talk about impermanence on what I call a big level and a subtle level. The big level is the one most easy to relate to. Have you noticed that in life things change? Nothing is constant. Your body is aging. We're experiencing loss. Sometimes we get what we want. Sometimes we don't get what we want. You get a job. You get laid off. Your car gets a flat tire, right? It's all around us. Every, everything is changing all of the time. There's a Zen teacher named Suzuki Roshi that was asked by one of his students who didn't understand this shit, in particular this shit that I'm talking to y'all about today. They said, hey man, just summarize it for me. Like, how could you put all of the Buddhist teachings into a phrase? And his response was, everything changes. Everything changes. This is really at the core of the Buddhist teaching. These three marks of existence aren't actually three separate things. They're just different angles to view the same thing. And they all kind of center around the importance of impermanence, that life is changing. Alan Watts says, whether we like it or not, change comes. The greater the resistance, the greater the pain. Buddhism perceives the beauty of change, for life is like music in this. If any note or phrase is held longer than its appointed time, the melody is lost. Thus, Buddhism may be summed up in two phrases, let go and walk on. Drop the craving for self, for permanence, for particular circumstances, and go straight ahead with the movement of life. So, here's an important moment in this talk. 
I believe that shit. I've experienced that shit. I know that to be true. I'm not in control and I have to learn how to let go. But the Buddha was very skillful in his teaching in that he knew that saying something like that wasn't actually going to help us. Because how do you let go and walk on, as Alan Watts says? Meditation. So in life, we experience love, we experience heartbreak, we get things, we experience loss, we have status, we get rejected. When we look at our lives, we see that nothing is constant, that we're not in control, that we only have influence, that influence is only temporary, that influence requires upkeep, that it's kind of all an illusion, but we still have to engage in life, even though it's changing all of the time. So what do we do about it, right? So it is the mind's perceptual habit. Out of our evolution, I don't know why. Cool thing about Buddhism, we don't really care why. We just see what the how is. The mind tends to, out of its perceptual habit, want to control conditions and wants things to be stable and secure. But we live in a world that is not. It's not our fault that the mind wants things to be stable and secure. It's the way that the mind, on one level, thinks that it's safe. In order for a real knowing to take place through meditation, we have to get to know impermanence on an intimate level. And we start to experience what I call subtle impermanence or more refined ways of seeing it. So when you're sitting in meditation, you start to observe, especially over a period of a retreat or maybe many days of practice, you can start to observe that your thoughts and feelings, sensations, mind states are impermanent. I have a story for this. I was on retreat, many of you all know, in Myanmar. It used to be called Burma. And it's a big place where this tradition, this insight meditation tradition started or uh, really developed. It's kind of the reason we're here, thanks to Burma. And I went to a retreat center with, uh, in the lineage of Saida Upendita and he was a very disciplined meditator. And about two weeks in, it was a month retreat, about two weeks in, I just got hit with this sudden attack of like homesickness. And this was really rare for me. Actually, I was usually, I'm kind of a pretty solitary person. I like to be left alone. Uh, to, to a fault a lot of the time. And so I was kind of baffled by how like visceral, how powerful, and how upsetting this experience of homesickness was. And so every other day you have an interview with the teacher, and I went into the interview, and I told the teacher about what I was experiencing, this homesickness. And he instructed me to try to break what I was calling homesickness down into its component parts. 
And what he meant by that is he said, I want you to really notice through your practice when a thought arises. And notice, just notice it as a thought. Try not to get lost in the content of, of what the thought is. And so I would do this. I would notice it. When a thought would arise, I noticed that it usually showed up in a couple forms. Sometimes it was like an image, like I missed my wife or I missed my friends. And I would kind of have this almost nostalgic image come up of my home and my friends. And that would, is what would come up in my mind, is that image. Sometimes what would come up would be a plan. Like I would think about all the things that I want to do when I get home, and then I would start feeling kind of homesick because of that plan. So I would notice the plan. Now the teacher instructed me not just to notice my thoughts, but he said, I also want you to notice that sometimes before and sometimes after the thought even happens, you'll notice that there's a mental impression, like a mind state is what we call it in, in Buddhism. He said that your mind will kind of be affected by the thought, or sometimes because your mind is affected, it will give rise to a thought. And so I would notice it. I would notice a gloominess or a sadness to my mind. Sometimes I just call it the mood of my mind. But he instructed me to go deeper, not just your thought, not just your mind state. He said, I want you to notice that also sometimes before and sometimes after the thought arises, there will sometimes be a pleasant feeling or sometimes an unpleasant feeling that comes with that, either before it, during it, or after it. And so I started to notice my feeling. And I noticed when I was really excited about a plan I was making in my head with friends, there was a pleasant feeling. But it was a restless pleasantness, like, ah, I want to be there. I want to be doing this. It made my body and mind restless. And then sometimes I would notice that either before, during, or after the thought, that there would be an unpleasant feeling, a feeling of pain, heartache. But he's told me to go beyond just noticing feeling. And he said, I want you to notice sensation. What happens in your body? I would notice tension. I would notice a heaviness. And what was really interesting about this practice is what I was just kind of calling homesickness was actually all of these component parts. It was thoughts. It was mind states. It was feelings. It was sensations. And that they weren't all happening at the same time. Sometimes the thoughts were really heavy and there was an unpleasant feeling. Sometimes the thoughts were subtle and there was a pleasant feeling. Sometimes there was physical sensation in my chest. Sometimes there wasn't much sensation in my body. And I started just noticing my experience on the level of thought, mind state, feeling, and sensation. And what I realized is that this whole experience of homesickness was impermanent and conditional. It was conditioned. That then when there was a thought, there was a feeling. And the feeling led to another thought. Do you ever notice this when you're driving down the road and if you kind of, we sometimes call it a rabbit hole. Like maybe you're feeling kind of sad, maybe it's rainy outside, and you don't really notice your mind state or your mood. And then you're driving down the road and your mind just like 
you know, picks out, it's like on shuffle and it just picks out like two years ago with your ex-partner. Remember that time, right? And then your mind starts to reminisce. Maybe it's pleasant, maybe it's unpleasant, who knows? But it starts to mull on it. And then that leads to another thought, that leads to another feeling, that leads to another experience. And we start to realize that this whole process of the mind and the body is constantly in flux and conditional. One thing leading to another thing, leading to another thing, leading to another thing. Now, the Buddha says in the Satipatthana, his instructions on practicing mindfulness, he says, the practitioner should abide contemplating the nature of what is arising in the body, or they should abide contemplating the nature of what is passing away in the body, or they should abide contemplating the nature of both what is arising and what is passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in this person to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness to just keep watching it, watching it, watching it. And this person becomes independent, not clinging to anything in the world. They surrender into the flow of the impermanence. Now, to call back to the fine print here, we're not simply gaining peace of mind through sitting and breathing, are we? We're studying our experience, and our heart and mind, as we study it, deeply internalizes. Sometimes we talk about the process of surrender, right? Let it go. Let it go. My daughter loves Frozen. Let it go. But in order to actually let it go, if you ever wonder why it's so hard to do it, is because there's a part of us that still believes that it wants to hold on to it. It doesn't fully understand on a deep internal level that it is safe or okay to let go. And so we're training the heart to let go. We're teaching it that it's not in control in the first place. So that's the subtle level. The big level, everything changes. Have you noticed? The subtle level is that is also true for the moment-to-moment experience of your mind and body process. The second truth, the second characteristic of existence is dukkha. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about dukkha you know, the, the etymology or what that word means. It's a, it's a traditionally a really hard word to translate. But what dukkha points to is that, remember, anicca, impermanence, and dukkha are really a part of the same thing. So because everything is in flux, from your major experiences in life down to your moment-to-moment transient nature of your mind and your body, There's an inherent insecurity or unsatisfactoriness that pervades that experience. There's an insecurity to life, is a simple way of putting it. So if everything is impermanent, including your thoughts, feelings, emotions, physical sensations, that there is a fundamental insecurity to life. So there's another story of another Zen master, Shunru Suzuki, who was also asked to distill the Dharma down into a simple phrase. 
And his phrase is really poignant for talking about dukkha and impermanence. He says, not always so. Not always so. So on the big level, life is not always so. It's inconstant. It's in flux. It's not how we want it. The mind wants it to be pleasurable. It wants it to be secure. It wants it to be predictable. Have you noticed the mind wants to make plans around things, has expectations around things. It wants the air conditioning to be at the right temperature. It wants uh, the, the pleasurable foods. It doesn't want to eat its broccoli. You know, it's like the mind is constantly being inundated by conditions that are not always so, not quite predictable. So like I said earlier, life shows up based on a, a bunch of different factors that we're not in control of. If we do somehow maintain influence for a period of time over certain factors, they require constant upkeep. Have you noticed you have to pay your bills every month? <laughs> right? You've got to take your car to the Jiffy Lube or whatever, right? You've got to keep going to the gym. Fuck, right? It's like... <laughs> So sometimes I like to define, I think you can define dukkha in a lot of ways, is that life is kind of work, right? It's, it's insecure, it's unstable, but that I also like am constantly having to keep it up. And even if we do maintain influence over conditions and, and work really hard to keep our influence over it, there can still be sudden changes. We can experience death and loss. We ourselves can die at any moment. These are things we don't like to think about, and it's not the, for the purpose of being morbid or be overcoming ourselves with despair, but it's to realize that it's actually true, that your life itself is impermanent, and in that it is insecure. So the subtle level of dukkha is observing the truth of this unsatisfactoriness or this insecurity at the level of the mind and the body through meditation. One of the ways that you can e easily notice this in meditation is you start to notice that your body is a discomfort factory. That it is sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes neutral. And that we can, sure, and we should, during our waking life, hopefully mindfully change the air conditioning and stretch our legs and try to make the body comfortable, but that your body actually will never be rested in comfort for very long. It is a factory of discomfort. So in meditation, part of the practice, and I don't mean this in an unbalanced martyr kind of way, but part of the practice is learning to sit with pain and discomfort and recognizing that it's the nature of the body to become painful. And we start to develop this insight that no matter what I do, no matter how much I adjust or how much I stretch or how much I go, you know, that I should still take care of my body, but I'm not going to be able to prevent it from discomfort. So I actually should start learning another skill other than just trying to feel comfortable all the time. Nothing's wrong with feeling comfortable, but... If I'm always going to be pervaded by pain at moments, then I should start practicing 
compassionate awareness. The insight of what causes pain is usually a reactivity to it, a mental reactivity. And I won't go, we'll go deeper into this as we go along, but one of the insights that I've had working with pain in meditation is that I noticed that if you actually focus on the pain, and it's the mind that's calling it pain, if you go into the level of sensation, it's still unpleasant, but the more that I am actually present with what's unpleasant, the more I notice that it actually has a texture to it. It starts to be broken down into its component parts. There's a sharpness, there's a heat, there's a vibration, there's texture to what my mind is calling pain. And if you can be with the texture of the sensation through present awareness, you notice that there's not a lot of mental suffering around it. And if you don't believe this to be true, it's researched, widely researched. Some of y'all may have heard of, oh, I forget, you maybe could tell me, not to put you on the spot, but if you know, tell me, of the person that studies uh, the window of tolerance. Yeah. Any of y'all know who that is? Daniel Siegel, window of tolerance. So we're able to study this, is that actually that we have this capacity to sit with discomfort, unpleasant feeling, and to develop what the Buddha would call equanimity, what Daniel Siegel refers to as distress tolerance, that you actually can become more comfortable being uncomfortable. And I would say with Buddhism, not only can you become more comfortable being uncomfortable, but you can understand better that this realm that you live in is uncomfortable and that it's not your fault and that it's nothing you have to fix, that there's a way that we can understand it and have compassion. The last of the three marks connected to the other two is because all experience is impermanent, constantly in flux on the big level and the subtle level, that means that there is also no fixed permanent self at the center of it all. Who you are is not a noun, you're a verb. Now, this is the hardest one to get our heads around because I think it's easy for us to say everything in life changes because we see it. I think it's easy to say that life is not always so. It's kind of pervaded by this insecurity and, and it's inherently stressful is another way to put that. I think it's easy to say that. I think the thing that we identify with the most is it seems like I am the one that is sitting in the driver's seat here and that I've been Andrew my whole life and I have certain things about my personality that are me. And on the big level, I think it's hard to get our head around that. But I will say there are ways that we already know this to be true. First of all, how much suffering is created by the narrative that you have about yourself? Brene Brown calls it the self-made story, right? So part of what psychology and therapy focuses on is that the way you think about yourself is often distorted and that those distortions are usually created through experiences in life. You can call them negative core beliefs. And that narrative is something that you can be mindful of and challenge. And that leads to a lot of liberation, right? A lot of freedom. So if yourself was this kind of fixed permanent thing, then how could you ever change that narrative? 
right? I guess the simple way of putting this, Chris Niebauer says that what you are is uh, not a thing, but a thought, right? It's a thought about Andrew. It's a thought that I'm not good enough. It's a thought that I need to be this or should be that or should be better at that. These are thoughts that actually occur in the moment that we can start to recognize. There's a Greek named Heraclitus that said, no person ever steps in the same river twice, for it is not the same river and it is not the same person. And so what he means by this, I think, is that who you are is a changing, evolving process. You're constantly gaining new experiences to add on top of old experiences. You're able to investigate your old experiences to challenge your thoughts about yourself, right? Like who you think you are and how you think you're doing in this world is very wrong a lot of the time. And it's subject to our thoughts. That is the reason we believe it. If you don't believe me that this is true, why is Brene Brown so popular? What does she talk about? Shame. And what is shame? I'm not good enough. So mindfulness can help us to also uproot the self-making function of the mind. The Buddha's not saying that you don't have a self, but he's saying that your self is like a constellation of stars in the sky, that it's made up of different processes. And I won't go deep into this, but Rachel and I are going to talk about the three marks over a couple months. But if you are interested, these processes that we're made up of are called the five aggregates in Buddhism. I just like to say you're, like I said earlier, you're not a noun, you're a verb. So in meditation, we observe thoughts and mind states, feelings, sensations as they come and go. And we start breaking our identification with these. It's not my thought. It's not my feeling. It's the thought. It's still here. It's not detachment. It's engaged non-attachment. It's starting to break out that identification with our thoughts and feelings. I'll close with this. And I have to attribute a friend of mine, Tara Malay, that I was in a training with for helping me find this quote through one of her Dharma talks. Uh, it's a story, it's a poem, actually, by Tai Jitsu, which is an 18th century abbess of a Zen monastery. So she was a nun many years ago, and this is a poem about her awakening. It says, she saw that arising phenomena arose, abided, and then passed away. She saw that the knowing of this arose, abided, and passed away. Then she knew that there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean on at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist of her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. <laughs>